right. It's good to see everyone this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Danny Evans. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And we are on a three-part series about heaven. This is the third part, the last part of our series on heaven. And we're actually going to conclude chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians today. And as I went through these passages and these verses today, they are amazing. These verses are such an encouragement to my heart, and I really think they are probably the most impactful verses and the strongest declaration of the gospel that there probably is in all of Scripture. The more I read it, the more I meditated on them, the more I memorized these and soak them into my heart as the gospel just reigns clearer and clearer to me about who Christ is, about His character and what God did for us by conquering sin and reigning and having victory over death. And so I hope today that you're encouraged by these words as much as I was and that you can feel the enthusiasm from Christ and that He is King and Lord and He reigns victorious over death. And so we're going to join and we're going to look at the last nine verses of 1 Corinthians today. Before we do this, I want to talk about last week And last week we talked about our resurrected bodies, and that was in verses 35 through 49 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we answered three questions about our resurrected bodies. First question we asked is, how are they raised? How is this general resurrection possible? That's what the church in Corinth was asking. How in the world can God take these molecules from people that have died or maybe people that were cremated and they took their ashes and they spread them all over the ocean now they're all over the whole world how in the world can God put that back together and make a resurrected body that just seems impossible so we looked in how God is creator and how he created Adam from the dust of the earth and he will create our resurrected bodies in the same way he is supernatural creator And then the next thing we looked at is, what will these resurrection bodies be like? What are they going to be like? And we talked about how they're going to be physical bodies. But they'll have supernatural powers and supernatural abilities. And we're going to look in more detail about that today. How they're imperishable, how they have power, how they're immortal. And the verses today re-announce those wonderful qualities that God will give us at the resurrection when he comes back the second time, the second resurrection of our bodies. And last, talked about and finished up last week about how do you get this body? How do you get this resurrected body? Because everyone should want it. I mean, it's an amazing body. Everyone wants to be the superhero. They want this amazing superhuman body. They want to defy all the, the laws of nature and act in amazing ways. So how do you get this? Well, Jesus tells us how to get that. He told Nicodemus that, you know, Nicodemus, you're born of this earth. You're born naturally from your mother. But what you need, Nicodemus, is to be born again. To get this resurrected body, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have to be born from heaven. And verse 49 of 1 Corinthians really kind of reaffirms that theme right there. In verse 49 it says, And just as we have been born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the man from heaven. See, this verse is the conclusion really of all those first previous 14 verses in the comparing and contrasting of our earthly bodies to the resurrected one. 
John Piper says this. He says, The resurrection body completes the work of redemption and gives to us the image of the Savior. We are made in the image of God as far as personality is concerned, but in the image of Adam as far as the body is concerned. One day we shall bear the image of the Savior when we share in His glory. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says it this way. It says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, we're being etched and molded and shaped into the image of God. So every trial that you go through, every burden that you bear, every hardship in your life, every time you say, I am weak and I cannot do this on my own, and you give it to God and you ask Him to deal and work in those trials and those situations, that's God etching you and molding you and shaping you into His image. That's His job. That's what He's doing in you every day. It says in Philippians, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is committed. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. No matter what trials we're going through, no matter what hardships are happening in our life, He is there etching us into the image of His Son. And He's not going to give up until the day He comes back. The day He comes and returns to this earth and He redeems this earth and He resurrects our bodies and we join with Him forever in heaven. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this amazing supernatural change that's going to take place in our lives at the resurrection. It's going to be exciting. We're going to look at three different things today. We're going to look at this change, the change that happens to our bodies if we're still alive at the resurrection. Then we're going to talk about the victory, the victory that Jesus has accomplished over death. And then finally, as an outpouring of this, we're going to look at some application Based on these truths, based on the truths of the resurrection, based on the importance of how important the resurrection is, how now should we live our lives on this earth until Christ comes back? So join with me in prayer as we look to our time in 1 Corinthians. Lord, I am so encouraged by your word. These verses have so impacted my heart this week and have been such an encouragement to me. And I pray today that you would come and you would enter this place of worship and your spirit would pour out and you would speak through me these words that Paul declared in such boldness to the church in Corinth that we could hear from you today in the same boldness and the same excitement that under heaven and earth there is nothing greater than you, Lord. You are the all-sufficient Savior. You are the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. And what you've done and how you've conquered sin and how you've conquered death is just an amazing thing. And how you're going to put that together at the the resurrection when you come back together is just an amazing thing. To be able to be a part of that is going to be a day that we wait for and long for in our hearts. So Lord, I pray that you would open all of our hearts today. That those that know you, that we would get to know you more intimately and closer today because of these words. 
And those that don't know yet, that you would just speak into their hearts and that you would tell them, Lord, that you are calling them to yourself and that these words would encourage their heart to bow their knee to you because there is no one other heaven and earth that is greater than you. And so, Lord, we just ask you to speak. And we ask these in your matchless name. Amen. Let's look at these first four verses. Look at verse 50 through verse 53. Verse 50 says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. So the first thing we're looking at is this change. And Paul says he is revealing a mystery, something that has been hidden from times past and now is being revealed. And I think this is a mystery because even to Paul in his fleshly earth suit and his body that is cursed by sin, it's hard to fathom and imagine this incredible thing that's going to happen to our bodies, that there's going to be a supernatural change. So he's saying, man, this is incredible. God has revealed this to me. And man, it is a mystery. I'm going to tell you it, but it blows me away. It is incredible. What's happening here is that Paul, too, in the beginning of verses, is also talking about that our flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Our flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I talked in the past weeks how we will have a physical body in heaven. But what he's referring to here in these verses is the flesh and blood that we currently have. These bodies that we currently have, no way can go to heaven. These present bodies are fallen. They're destructible. But our future bodies, though still bodies in the fullest sense, will be untouched by sin and indestructible. They'll be like Christ's resurrected body that we talked about last week. Both physical yet indestructible with supernatural powers. So what does this word perishable mean? Here in the verses it talks about perishable must put on the imperishable. The word perishable here is also translated as corruptible or that which will not last. We will not be able to take our dead, old, worn out bodies with us to heaven. Can I hear an amen? Thank goodness, man. I do not want to take this body to heaven. It's dying. It's decaying. I don't care how many vitamins you take, how many great diets you go on. It's going down. Our bodies are going down. You may add a couple years to your life, but man, it's going down. And thank goodness we don't have to take them to heaven. Now what does this mean here? It says in a moment or in a twinkling of an eye. Well, the word moment here is from the Greek word atomos, where we get obviously our word atom from. So it's a small time. It's a very small time. And then in a twinkling of eye, you know, when you think of a twinkling of eye, you think of seeing someone, there's a flash off of their eye. Well, that's the speed of light. So I think it's painting the picture of pretty fast. This change is going to take place pretty quickly in an instant, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Now let's look on. It talks about the trumpet blast. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Now, the sound of a trumpet is used a lot of times in scriptures. In the scripture in the Old Testament, 
It's used to call the nation of Israel to God, to point them back to God. There'll be a trumpet blast, and the nation would rally around and come together, and then Moses, or one of the prophets, they would talk to the nation of Israel. And that's used also in the Old Testament to prophesy about this second coming of Christ, when he will return to the earth. And Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew 24. Verse 31, he says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds and one end of the sky to the other. So it will be this amazing trumpet blast that will announce the second coming of Christ. And then after the trumpet is sounded, two things will happen. It first says, the first thing will happen, it says that the dead in Christ will raise imperishable. The dead in Christ will raise imperishable. And this is for all the saints that have gone before and have died or in the grave. They're in the present heaven now. And this supernatural event will take place where those old saints, their souls, will be united with a resurrected body. And there's a great illustration of this in the Civil War. Um, there was a, in the Civil War, a group of soldiers had to spend the night out in the open field, and it was during the winter. And during the night, it, it snowed several inches, and at dawn, a chaplain reported a very strange sight. He said, The snow-covered soldiers looked like the mounds of new graves. And then when the bugle sounded revelry, a man immediately rose from each mound of snow, dramatically reminding the chaplain of this very passage. So it's going to be an amazing thing. The dead in Christ will raise up and they'll be united with their resurrected bodies. And then the next thing will happen is there will be a change. It says we will be changed. So who is we? Well, that's whoever is left on the earth. All those who follow Christ and have their faith and trust in Him alone for their salvation, they will change. So if we're one of them, we will be changed. We will, our bodies will in an instant, in a moment, change from that which is perishable, which is decaying, which is dying, to imperishable. I think 1 Thessalonians really paints an amazing, wonderful picture of this. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is talking to the church in Thessalonica, and he is trying to encourage them with the coming of the Lord and what it will look like. And they're kind of confused about it all. So he tries to paint a picture to them of what this resurrection, when Jesus comes back for the second coming, what it's going to look like. And he says the first thing that happens is, is that we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What a great picture of death, huh? And Paul uses this often, that we won't die as believers, as followers of Christ. We will not die. We will fall asleep. It's so neat to know that it's more of a picture of going from one conscious state to another. Like when you fall asleep, you're conscious. And when you go to sleep, you're unconscious. You're sleeping. And that's what death is like for the believer. We will fall asleep. And he paints that picture here in 1 Corinthians 15. And he does it again in Thessalonians. And it says that we will not precede those saints that have died and gone up to the present heaven. We will not precede them. 
Verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these amazing words. And they are amazing words. And it's an amazing picture of what's going to happen in the second coming of Christ. That the dead in Christ will raise first. They will raise and they'll be joined with their resurrected bodies. And then us that are remaining on the earth will have this supernatural change and we will receive our resurrected bodies. And then he will gather us all together. In this verse it says he'll gather them together and we'll be caught up in the air. And this word is also translated as raptured. And it's the only time in scripture it's used. Raptured. We've all heard the word raptured a lot of times used. But we'll be raptured. We'll be caught up together. All brought together. And we'll be brought up and fly up and ascend up into the clouds. And I talked about last week the resurrection body and some of the qualities. Well, this body will be able to fly. Isn't that amazing? What a cool quality that we will be raised up into the clouds. And then even more encouraging is we'll be raised with all the saints and we will be with the Lord. What? A little while? No. We'll be with the Lord forever. We'll be caught up and brought with Him forever. What an amazing picture this is that brings together that the earth will be redeemed when Christ comes back down. We will all be brought and we will be drawn towards Him and we will be caught up in the clouds with our resurrected bodies into heaven with Him forever. What a cool, awesome picture. Let's go on in verse 53 and look at what this change really looks like. Verse 53 talks about this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must Put on immortality. Why must the perishable put on the imperishable and the mortal put on immortality? Why must that happen? Well, it's pretty obvious. Our earthly bodies cannot handle heaven. There's no way our earthly bodies could even get a grip on heaven. I mean, if you think about our bodies today, science tells us that our mind, we can only use about 10% of our brain. And our vision, we can only see a certain range of colors in our vision spectrum. We can't see the ultraviolet. We can't see infrared. In our hearing, we can only hear in a certain frequency of sound. Where there's far other frequencies that, we can't, where, that are going on right now, we can't even hear. But when we get our resurrected bodies, I'm sure all of our senses will be fully capable and at 100% of everything. So that's why these perishable bodies cannot handle being in heaven. We will need a resurrected body to be able to capture the full brilliance of heaven, the brilliance of its color from our resurrected eyes, the brilliance of the sound from our resurrected ears, the brilliance of touch, the brilliance of our mind to know the amazing wonders of God and the full knowledge of God, to be able to understand all that. Our bodies that we have now can't go to heaven and even fathom it. Not only are they cursed by sin, but they don't have the senses, they don't have the physical capabilities to understand and really grasp the magnificence of heaven. Now, what does this mean to put on? 
in these verses says put on these things put on the imperishable put on immortality now this word is commonly used as putting on clothing pictures are redeemed spirits as being dressed if you will with redeemed bodies and I love the illustration of the superhero you think about a superhero and it's such a great analogy you got Clark Kent and you got Peter Parker and not are they just an average Joe they're like a dork right and I don't want to offend too many newspaper writers, but for some reason they make them newspaper writers. And they're writing in newspapers or photographers in newspapers. And so they're kind of just an average Joe or even less than that. But when they put on that Superman costume or that Spider-Man uniform, they become supernatural. They put on supernatural abilities. So that is the same way with us when we go to heaven. We will put on the supernatural. We, the old self will still be there, but we will put on supernatural abilities. And that's the picture. And we have that here, is foreshadowing of that here on earth, don't we? Colossians chapter 3 talks about that anyone that's put their identity and faith in Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit. And they are able to put on the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 12, it says, you'll be able to put on a heart of compassion. Put on kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And so us here today, if you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and you have the fruits of the Spirit within you. You are able to put on supernatural abilities. And I've heard that said when you... Sometimes you see non-believers and they see believers and how they act and how they act in compassion and kindness towards people and they're blown away because the world does not look like that. That's because the Spirit of God is within them to put on supernatural abilities and to move towards people in love and compassion and kindness. Not because of our own self, but because of the Spirit within us is giving us those supernatural abilities to love others more than ourself. Now verse 53 tells us of the, of the result of what is accomplished because of the supernatural change in our life. So let's look at verse 54 through 56. For when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, what is accomplished because of this change is there's going to be victory over death. That's my next point. There's going to be victory over death. Christ's resurrection broke the power of death, and for those who believe in him, in Romans chapter 6, he talks about this in verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And because Christ has mastery or has conquered death, so do we who put our faith in him. If you put your faith in Christ, you too can have victory over death. And therefore, we need no longer fear death. Many of you guys have seen the bumper sticker, No Fear. I know some of the youth have, right? I see them on the back of usually these crazy kids that are like into extreme sports, you know, they like doing nuts, crazy stuff, 
skateboarding and BMX riding and motorcycle. That's kind of the theme of the generation. Some of the Gen X, Gen Yers is no fear, right? Because you can't have fear if you're going to do these wild, crazy, extreme events. So that's their theme is having no fear. And no way I'm going to see a bunch of Christians with, you know, we're, we're the, the play-it-safe Christians, right? We're, we're not going to do crazy stuff like that. That's scary. That, that's risky. You know, you see a bunch of Christians jumping off, bungee jumping off of the Royal Gorge or maybe surfing 100-foot waves out in Maui. I mean, no way. We're played safe. We don't want to do those crazy things. But it's kind of funny because God is a risk taker. Probably the greatest risk taker of all. And he took an amazing risk with us, didn't he? He created the whole world created all the world and he created us human beings in his image and then he took a risk with us he said i'm going to make you in my image but you know what i'm going to give you a free will i'm going to give you the choice to choose me and to obey me or not to that's a huge risk and then he'd taken even huger risk as a father he became he became a father and had a son and he didn't have many sons he only had one one son and he sent him down to this earth and took a huge risk. Sent him into the earth, not as a king, but as a baby. And not of royalty, but of carpenters in a poor household in Nazareth. And to send him on mission impossible to live a life that was perfect without sin. And to fulfill all the prophecies that were written about him. He had an amazing incredible thing to do and then to die on a cross for our sin that's a God that took a lot of risk and so for us we are not to fear death but we're to fear God and revere God Jesus tells us or he tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul But rather fear him who has ability to destroy both the soul and body in hell. So we're to live a life without fear of man. Without fear of persecution. Without fear of Satan and his demons. Without fear of the government or Al-Qaeda. And most of all, without fear of death. My wife was deathly afraid of death. She witnessed her father died of cancer and it scared her to death. She was afraid to die. And that fear, though, drove her to Christ. Drove her to the one who had conquered sin and conquered death. And now she does not fear death anymore. Now there are two images here in verses 54 through 56 of, of this victory we have over death. The first one is that of being swallowed up. And this is from, Paul draws back from the Old Testament. He draws back from Isaiah chapter 25 when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. That's from Isaiah chapter 25. And he goes on to say, O death, where is your sting? O death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's from Hosea chapter 13. So there's two analogies here of this victory over death Paul is using um, to describe what happens at the second coming. 
that death will be swallowed up in victory and there will be no more destructive sting in it. Now, even though we have victory over death, it is still our enemy. Chris talked about this in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, The last enemy to be destroyed, to be destroyed is death. But this isn't a real enemy. This is an apparent enemy. For just as the enemy Satan thought he had won victory over Christ on the cross, Jesus was swallowed up in death and went into the tomb. But he rose back out eternal life. It was an apparent victory from an apparent enemy, but he conquered it. The tomb swallowed him up, but he rolled away the stone and rose victorious. Death had an apparent victory in the earthly sense because Jesus' earthly perishable body died, but in a heavenly sense it was raised imperishable, immortal, the resurrected body, victorious. Now, the other image here is that of being stung. How many of you have been stung by a bee? I'm sure probably all, everyone's been stung by a bee. If you haven't, amazing how you've accomplished that. Maybe you're only 10, oh, 15, 16. <laughs> how many of you have been stung by a scorpion? Nobody here? Anybody? Okay, luckily I haven't either. So, but I hear the sting of a scorpion is even worse. And that maybe is an analogy here because uh, I know Paul was stung by a scorpion. What does a sting do? You're stung. It's like a sharp pain, right? It's a sharp, impending pain. So what happens, what Paul's describing here is that the sting implies there's a sharp, painful thrust, if you will, against our soul when we die. And Paul says that it'll be gone. That sting, that sharp, painful thrust that was there will be gone because somebody took our stinger. And that was Jesus. He took the sting of death. And that stinger is in him. To make this point more, Paul reminds us that the sting of death is sin. So what does that mean? The sting of death is sin. Well, that means that death and sin are synonymous, right? They are the same. So before we die, it'll be uncomfortable. It'll be painful. It will sting. For those of you who have watched someone die, it's not a pretty sight. A lot of times it's very painful, especially if they have cancer or something like that. It's very painful. They go through a very uncomfortable time. But before they die, there will be no sting in that because the stinger will be taken away. And it says here that the sting of death is sin, so they're synonymous. So it's sin that is causing this death. Death is the punishment for our sin. Not the person's personal sin, but globally for the world. Because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin entered the world. And the punishment for that was death, as it says in Genesis. Now the sequence ends with the next phrase. It says, the power of sin is the law. Verse 26. God's law reveals God's standards. And when they are broken, they reveal God's sin. Even those that do not follow God's law have the law written on their heart. And this is talked about in Romans chapter 2. That those that don't even know God have the law written on their heart and it's called a conscience. And if they don't obey their conscience, they're willfully sinning against God. And so they're accountable for that and doomed to death. 
Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin are death. Sin and death are synonymous. Pretty bad news, huh? But let's look at verse 57. Verse 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is gone because God did something. He sent his son to satisfy all the demands of the law and bear all the penalty of our sin. Galatians chapter 3 puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So, in light of that, great news. What should be our response? How should we respond in light of this amazing truth of the victory over death? Verse 57 says, we need to be thankful. We need to have thanksgiving in our heart. We need to say, thanks be to God. So this leads us to the final point in the final verse in 58. The practical outpouring, if you will, of what God did for us. How we should respond. Look at verse 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. And so Paul is concluding all of chapter 15 here with some practical ways to live our lives because of the truth of the resurrection. So how should we live our lives as Christians? So we just lay around waiting for this second coming, this wonderful event. Should we just wait around until we die and go to heaven? It's not the picture Paul wants to paint here. Paul concludes with these three ways we can live our lives as followers of Christ as a practical outpouring of the truths of the resurrection, of our victory over death and in light of heaven. First, he says what? Be steadfast. What does this mean? It means to be seated or to be settled or firmly situated. Steady as you move forward. Keep on going forward. Don't give up. Put your hand to the plow and don't take it off till it's done. So it's that visual of when you're plowing a field and you've got a horse in front of you, you've got to keep your head focused on that horse and keep your head pushing the plow. If you don't, it's a mess. It goes just out of control. Now, I haven't done that before, so my visual is this. If you watch a Tour de France, you guys watch a Tour de France? Okay, I watch it every day, I'm afraid. I'm addicted. <clears throat> but the Tour de France, when you're in the bike race, You've got to stay your line. You've got to stick and you've got to focus on the people ahead of you. Okay? And you've got to watch everything around you. And you've got to be steadfast. You've got to stick in there. You can't be flinching and jumping around. And when guys do flinch and jump around, what happens? Massive pileups, massive crashes. So that's a vision they have here of being steadfast. Is stay the course. Stick on the line. Hang in there. Don't be flinching and around. Stay steadfast. The next image here is be immovable. So this carries the same basic idea, but with more intensity. It denotes being immovable and motionless, immobile, if you will. It means don't get knocked over by sudden blows. Keep your balance. Stand strong, unshaken, and when the rains come and the floods come up and the winds blow and beat against your house, you are standing firm. And this is that vision of... In the hurricanes, when you see one house standing or one tree standing all by itself, that's the vision here. Hebrews puts it a great way. It says, keep your eyes firmly fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Don't be distracted by the things of the world that bog you down and knock you down and make you feel depressed and bummed like this world is just way too much. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on heaven. Set your mind on things above. That's the imagery that Paul paints here. Is we're to keep our minds focused on things above and not get bogged down and dragged down by Satan and these demons and all the crud that goes on in this earth. He wants us to stay steadfast, stay immovable. And finally he says, Always abound in the work of the Lord. This work abound here is also used in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about how God lavishes his grace upon us. It's that picture of a cup overflowing. It just keeps pouring into a cup and it's overflowing. That God abounds in us. He pours into us lavishly. He gives us immeasurably and abundantly beyond what we can dream or imagine us. He's always pouring into us. That's the picture of this. And we too, as an outpouring of that, need to pour that back out into service for God, into service to the Lord. We must always abound in service to the Lord. For our work is not in vain and toil. I think about how much I do in this world that's in vain. You just think about just my job and how many things I do. And even like raising our kids, if it's not for the Lord... It's in vain. Even charity and helping other people. If it's not for the Lord, it's in vain. It's worthless. Our lives need to abound in work for the Lord. And we need to be pouring back into other people and loving other people and following Christ's example in service to Him and that giving back to Him. That's what Paul is trying to paint a picture of, of giving back to God. This amazing gift that he's given us, this victory over death, this resurrected body, a home in heaven, and to not twiddle our thumbs and wait around until the day Christ returns, but to be diligent, to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he says, your work will not be in vain. If you are working unto the Lord, it will not be in vain. And sometimes we feel in ministry, our work is in vain. But it is not. It says abound. If you're working for the Lord, your work, your toil is not in vain. So my charge to you today is to know the Christ who conquered sin and has victory over death. To me, this week has been such an encouragement to really think about how amazing God is. The incredible characteristics of God and Christ and how he is all-sufficient how he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and how he came down to earth as a lamb but he will return in his second coming as a lion. Revelation portrays him as on a white horse and that he will come down as king of kings and Lord of lords and he will reign victorious over the whole world. That's the king I serve. Is he yours? The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder do you know him? (laughs) 
David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the fundament showeth his handiwork. My king uh, is, a, is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the coronal necessity for spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's, he, yes, he is. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, this is my king. He is the key. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's in the... Yeah! 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 He's indescribable. Yes, he is. Good God. He, he's indescribable. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. 
Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, then amen. Good God Almighty. Amen. Amen.